Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talks about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm the editor Peter White, and we've got with us today solar analyst Andrew Swantonar. Hello there. Uh, hydrogen analyst Bogdan Avramuta. Hello. EV analyst uh, Connor Watts. Hello. As well as our product manager Simon Thompson. Morning, Peter. All the discussion you're going to hear is centred around the stories we published last night on our free weekly issue. And you can sign up on our website at www.rethinkresearch.biz and just click on energy. On this week's podcast, we'll discuss a new $6 billion project that will kickstart the Canadian hydrogen industry. Uh, suddenly, our solar analyst, Andres, has uh, realised that there will be even more solar installed than even we thought during 2025, about 700 gigawatts, and a small deal between Tata and Uber uh, that could see the India see the Indian EV market kick on and become uh, somewhat more significant. And finally, Simon will ask questions about one or two of the shorter items we published in the issue. So first off, we're going to take a look at this Canadian deal, uh, courtesy of Bogdan. Yeah, so the, the piece of news is that um, Everwind Fuels, which is an independent hydrogen project developer from North America, has um, received um, environmental approval for an initial phase of a $6 billion green hydrogen project in Canada, Nova Scotia. Uh, the aim of the project is to produce 1 million tons per annum of green hydrogen and green ammonia, and due to the Canadian-Germany trade deals that we reported back in August 2022, um, Everwin already has two off-takers in the form of um, E.ON and Uniper that are ready to, to, to purchase the hydrogen from 2025. Uh, now, we don't know what the capacity size of the plant will be. We know that um, from 2026, it will then be expanded uh, courtesy of two gigawatts of wind. So if I had to guess, I would say that before 2026, it would be sub gigawatt scale. And then from 2026, 20, it will um, it will go over one gigawatt of, of electrolysis capacity. Uh, but I think the, the interesting um, thing about Canada is that um, for one is this is the, the first major hydrogen project that's under construction. It only had about 80 megawatts to 100 megawatts in, in projects, um, most of them related to national gas um, in, uh, distribution pipeline injection of hydrogen and a feasibility study. So, so nothing very concrete, um, nothing very commercial. And then the second interesting point is um, the fact that Canada doesn't really, it's not really finding itself in a, in a big energy crisis unlike most of Europe or some other parts of the world because they have natural gas resources. So, and this is um, um, this is relevant because Europe just came out with its um, additionality rule, which basically requires um, um, any new hydrogen projects um, to be married up to new renewables as opposed to existing ones, just so um, then the electricity grid wouldn't then fall back to rely on coal and 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 dirty electricity and increase emissions that way. So Canada is in a is in a prime position to to keep on using its natural gas resources, and then keep on building renewables and hydrogen plants and marrying them up without without needing to 
to link the renewable plants to the electricity grids, um, which I thought it, um, yeah, highlighting that Canada is in a, in a prime position to take advantage of the um, so, so Canada industry. Well, right, so Canada has always been an exporter of energy, uh, mostly mm. to the United States, mostly from uh, from hydro. Um, but it's got such rich natural resources. We're talking about, we, we keep talking about the Russian war, and we talk about the huge natural resources of Russia. Uh, Canada is a similar entity um, in terms of its uh, natural resources. So um, it's funny that hydrogen, of course, isn't a natural resource. Um, it can be, but mostly it's not. Um, so mostly it's, it's produced. But it, it, Canada seems to be the right kind of... Uh, you, you have large open spaces, you have uh, periods of wilderness, you have um, um, availability of any raw materials that you require uh, on hand. Uh, it's surprising it hasn't entered into this before. Could could it become a, a kind of uh, energy powerhouse in the future, Bogdan? It could. That's, I think that's a good point that you made, that it hasn't really kick-started this yet and kind of waited until now. So only time will tell if uh, they actually manage to squeeze through the door last moment um, to take full advantage of it. But I think there's, there's definitely um, opportunities to be to be taken advantage of um, in Canada in terms of hydrogen exports. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I mean, it, it, it's already got excess energy. Um, that I, I, I would have expected, though, that um, hydrogen... Blue, blue hydrogen would be prevalent uh, in Canada um, with the availability of natural gas. I, I wonder if if we're going to see other projects come out. Uh, I mean, these these must have been announced previously because you know you, you don't get um, uh, permission to um, environmental approval uh, mm. if you haven't already uh, um, you know announced the project or at least you've produced a plan. Um, and I wonder if we're going to see a load of blue hydrogen projects come alongside the green. It's also that interesting that it's on. Uh, um, sorry, I was going to say uh, it's, it's on the east coast, isn't it? On in uh, Nova Scotia. So I wonder if it's looking over the Atlantic to to Europe for customers. Well, we, we've already said about Germany oh, already being a customer. Yeah, well, exactly. And and that's the other thing is that it's it's one of the first times in these recent hydrogen deals that we've been writing about, where we name we've named names, you know, potential customers and. Um, uh, yeah, it is true the, that a lot uh, of, um, of hydrogen hmm. projects are, are are mostly smoke and mirrors at first. You know, there's an amount of money. There's three companies. There's a place, but nothing much has happened. Um, yeah, so so yeah, this is this this could. I mean, what happens after environmental approval? Do they need a, any other permitting, um, Bogdan? Um, I can't really say. I'm, I'm fully aware of the whole permitting process. Okay, but I'm, I, I'm I assuming. Get, I would guess they're going to start yes. building now. Um, yeah, I mean it's. Um... I think building is supposed to commence later this year, so I can't imagine they need a ton of other paperwork done before that. There, there are enough uh, organizations which get uh, permission to do things which are rather poisonous in Canada, uh, and they get that permission easily enough. I, I don't believe uh, that, that past environmental approval, there's going to be much more. Mm. Okay, well, I mean, uh, it's great to see Canada join the race 
there's going to be more uh, like it, I, w I would imagine. Um, we saw America um, probably, we, f first announcements for hydrogen projects were probably three years ago in Europe. Uh, and then we've seen the, the the rest of the world light up. America was was late to the game, but has now got uh, multiple projects, and now Canada's joined in. So it looks to us like um, uh, it's we're going to be um, you know it, it, once it's got the first deal announced, it's going to see lots more, and there's there's lots more underlying activity. Let's move on to um, uh, the next thing, Andres. Um, you've got this obsession with uh with predicting the precise amount of uh, of solar that is being manufactured you know looking at the the supply side of the market and you're starting to uh think that you didn't think big enough on your forecast uh and you want to go you want to go bigger uh, tell us why yeah this comes from a, a conversation we were having on monday as you you know um so as I've mentioned a few times before, I think that, roughly speaking, the solar that gets manufactured in one year gets installed in the next year. So there's a, a roughly 12-month delay. It's probably a bit less than that. So back in when I was doing the Q3 uh, global installation figures update, um, I said that around 330 gigawatts of solar had been uh, manufactured in 2022. So the obvious logic is, well, it has to be installed. So it will be installed in 2023, and that will be the um, the global installation figure. Actually, probably a bit larger than that, because the delay isn't quite uh, 12 months. So you get to claim a bit of the larger 23 uh, manufacturing figures. And uh, it's not just me saying this. Now, uh, Trendforce, which is a rather um, which which is from rather excellent uh, analysts, are saying that they expect 351 gigawatts. To be installed worldwide. Look, don't all year. leave. Don't all leave our website now and go to Trendforce. <laughs> you know, our, you, you, don't, you, you don't advertise competition. Well, there's a, there's an even bigger number though that isn't from Trendforce. It's from the uh, the Chinese Ministry of Industry, and they say that last year actually there were 357 gigawatts of wafers manufactured. So the, the numbers are even bigger than that. So this is a 50% growth this year. So the question then is, well, how much are we manufacturing right now at the start of 2023? And, you know, as, as we were saying on Monday, it's about, it's at least 40 gigawatts per month, or it's between 36 gigawatts and 45 gigawatts. So that annualizes to between 430 gigawatts and 540 gigawatts. So that's the 2024 installation figure of at least 450 gigawatts. So then what's the 2025? installation figure well presumably it's even bigger than that so presumably something over 500 gigawatts um and you know it's, it's these are just enormous numbers um i think it'll probably i think the maximum amount that can be manufactured in 2024 ready to ready to be installed in 2025 is 800 so i think it'll definitely be less than 800 gigawatts installed that year um but of course you probably run into some uh into all sorts of other issues like land availability, um, not finance, not with the current energy prices, and um, land is basically grid connection is the the main thing that I think is going to be the next limiting factor now that polysilicon is is about to stop being um, the limiting factor. Although the, the currently the polysilicon price um, it halved from late last year, then it went up by fifty percent, so it's now up at seventy five percent. So and that's really why I'm writing this article because I was expecting. 
Well, let me just stop Sorry you there a second. Sorry if I'm rambling and jumping around a bit. Yeah, yeah. So you are rambling, <laughs> but but the 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 average um, solar developer hmm. right now, what's the message for him? I mean, uh, he's beleaguered. Um, Polysilicon was driving um, high prices uh, two years ago uh, last year. Um, now um, there's availability of lots of Polysilicon. Now it's supply and demand. Um, what's the message for the humble developer? What what can he expect to happen on module prices? Um, well, I still believe. Am I still audible, by the way? Hello? 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 Uh, I'm still audible. You're fine. No, I'm dropping in and out. Well, fortunately, I'm recording myself locally as well. Um, it's not you that's dropping in and out. It's somebody else. Hmm. Okay. Why did you interrupt the, the, the podcast for that? Because I thought I wasn't even audible. Um, right. So yeah, what's what's okay. my what's the commentary on module prices from the perspective of developers? Well, I was prompted to write this article by the res, uh, by the revival of polysilicon prices because that indicates that demand is still uh, enough um, to to hoover up all that's being manufactured, and so you can still look at the manufacturing numbers as how much is going to be installed. Um, but having said that, I think part of it is just a, a sort of volatility from the Spring Festival in China. And I've seen some commentary, which which I believe, that the price will fall uh, from March through to October. And then I expect it to rise again for a little Q4 surge, like there usually is each year. Um, so I, I still expect the price to fall. It's currently at $30 per kilogram uh, on polysilicon, um, which, and that's about 30% of the um, module price, by the way. So. Uh, yeah, I expect it to, to fall. Module prices will fall maybe 5% or something. It, it will come down a bit. Um, but, you know, with energy prices being as high as they are, maybe it's not even that big a, a problem. Um, I still expect the manufacturer. I, I wonder what everyone's getting out there when they phone their favorite solar supplier. Uh, are they being told we haven't got any, any modules for another 18 months? Hmm. Are they being pushed out further? Um, do they have to sort of beg, borrow, and steal from the distribution chains? What, what I mean, what experiences they're having? But we, I mean, that's not what this article's about. It's about the raw availability of of, uh, of modules globally. I think, in summary, the size of this market we always thought was going to be two or three times uh, what it was a couple of years ago. Now it's 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 continuing to accelerate. And it will continue to accelerate for at least another year before those natural limitations like grid availability start to uh, flatten mm. out the curve. Is that a good summary? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And what that indicates for pricing is uh, it's going to maintain uh, high prices for a while longer until we see that flattening in the curve. So that's that's the best advice we can give the world on that. I mean, it is. A it is a phenomenal when you compare those numbers with previous numbers that everyone has forecast ours are always at the top end of those forecasts and ours are being exceeded um, that, that's the best uh, guidance we can give the world um, so we'll kick on from there uh, Connor um, it was a small deal I thought between uh, Tata Motors and Uber um, but suddenly but at the same time the Indian four-wheel EV market is quite small. Um, is this a turning point? 
I don't know if I would call it a turning point, but the deal is 25,000 vehicles over a few years for Uber's EV fleet uh, to cater towards the premium market within India. And so I wouldn't say it's a turning point primarily because it's not aiming towards the kind of every man within the country. And so it's still very much a... Uh, a deal that isn't aimed at converting the masses to EVs. It's I mean, just... did you did you know where uh, Uber got its cars from before? Um, are, are they primarily uh, EVs, and are, are they mostly Teslas, or what are they using? I'm not entirely certain, but I have reason to believe that, you, that Uber in India specifically wasn't getting EVs for a vast majority of its fleet operations. Okay. So this is a new shift towards EVs, but it's also one that is primarily starting within the premium market. Okay. And as such, it can charge higher margins to then fuel further shift towards EVs. I think with only 25,000 vehicles, it makes the most sense to enter through this method. Right. Uh, uh, my understanding was they, they, they used Chinese cars before. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, uh, BYD in particular. So... Um, I mean, the fact that some of it's coming home uh, to Tata Motors, that'll be a huge effort on their part to try and uh, get a uh, a vehicle which is um, competitive with the Chinese market. But then again, they'll, you know, costs in India in manufacturing uh, are lower, and they should be so. able to, to do that. Um, it's the Express, Express T. I mean, have you seen a picture of that? What, what's, uh, um, what, what, what class of car is that? It's a sedan, so it's uh, it's not overly small. It's, it's uh, I want to say four door. I mean, what what people call a sedan in America, what they call a sedan in India, are two different things. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's a four door car with, with with a bit of space for luggage. It's not it's not um, a, a very large car, uh, I would yeah. imagine. Um, the would... vehicle has a uh, twenty six kilowatt hour battery and a 300 kilometer range roughly that's two options one of below 300 kilometers one just above aren't most american cars 75 kilowatt battery mm -hmm. and they are massive what well, they're lugging right. around the big right. and, and so feet. their range is, is also uh, is more like 300 miles rather than 300 kilometers but yeah yeah okay all right i mean that that's so and these this is for deployment in which parts of India? There's a list, if you give me one moment. It's um, a significant uh, range. In the big cities. In Delhi, NCR, Mumbai, Kolkata, Chennai, Hyderabad, Bengaluru, ruin that one, and Ahmedabad. Okay. Uh, I don't know um, the geography of India. But Neither do I, but I believe most... these are primarily urban areas. Bit, bit large, especially large, if it's catering towards areas, yeah. premium market, then I mean, don't want when we've we've looked at this market in the past, I'm always shocked at how small um, India is in, in the car market because of its sort of hundred million dollar, hundred million plus two wheeled powered vehicles, uh, which which are um, pushing over a three or four year period to being mostly electric, um, and and that's where the um, the all the EV forecasts that are local to India. We'll bundle this in together. But when you actually look at the capacity of the battery on a two-wheeler by comparison, 
um, you're not manufacturing anything like the amount of battery that you need. So uh, we've we've always looked at this market and thought, oh, it's quite small for four wheel market. But um, but Uber, of course, is going to be one of the larger fleets. Yeah, the four wheel market is definitely quite small, but. As you say, that's almost entirely because the two-world market is heavily cannibalizing on what would be a considerable four-world market because of the lack of infrastructure. And I don't know if you've seen videos of traffic jams in New Delhi, but uh, it doesn't look like a particularly fun place to drive a four-wheel vehicle by your electric you know, device. I wouldn't like to do that without air conditioning. There's only 32 million cars in India, um, four-wheeled vehicles in India. Um, uh, which, which seems a large number, but when you look at a billion people, uh, then you look at car ownership uh, per capita, it's lower than anywhere else in the world. Um, so it's it's got a long way to go. Um, and I would imagine, but we don't know with any certainty, that a lot of this is, as you say, traffic jams and lack of infrastructure, and that as India industrialises, um, both will get better leading to more cars. Okay, but uh, it would be nice to see uh, um, some kind of uh, surge in that market, and we are expecting it. But even now, it's um, the percentage of um, EVs installed each year is less than 1% of all new vehicles. So, you know, and, and we're seeing 2 million, 2.8 million new vehicles a year there. So it's it's not, uh, that may have gone up, um, uh, I, I was just reading a couple of pieces um, after I read this story yesterday, suggesting that that's gone up by quite a bit since we last looked in uh, 2022. So, um, so it, it, it has jumped past the three, 3.5 million new new vehicles, new four wheel vehicles a year. Um, but that's still starting to become a substantial market. Nothing like China and Europe, the two largest markets in the world, America third. Uh, but but potentially one day it will become that. Um, Simon, what, what do you have for us to discuss this week? Well, <clears throat> lots of things worth noting this week. And the thing that uh, I found interesting was an, a little aviation uh, story, and it is about the first hydrogen refuelling uh, point at, at Birmingham Airport in the UK, BHX. Bogdan, is, is this... Uh... Did you write this? Yes, uh, the announcement is basically between Zero Avia, which we uh, talked about and wrote about a lot before the developing hydrogen electric zero emission uh, short haul planes. Um, so it's it's great to see um, a deal being struck with an airport, an actual airport, um, and for them to think about hydrogen refueling infrastructure and uh, potentially starting to promote. Um, zero emission flights for the first time to passengers that come to the airport and see at all from 2025, we'll be able to fly zero emission um, domestically. Uh, this is something I that... Went. I went. Well, Zero Avia wants that they expect their first plane to, to be um, available in 2025. Uh, okay. I can't, can't remember if, if the Birmingham deal involves a date. Um, so, so we've been saying that people will vote with their feet and say, oh, if I can travel from... Glasgow to London um, z with zero emissions, uh, that will look great on my, and if my company's paying the bill, that will look great on my ESG record mm. and that people will opt for it automatically, even if it's a premium. Yeah. 
we basically yeah we basically been been talking about this uh, banging the drum on this for for a few months now um especially in light of all the talk about sustainable aviation fuels and and all that yeah yeah and uh, which which we are tending not to believe yeah that's, that's i mean it is it is hard forecasting something that's not going to happen until 2025 and then when you get there going hey we were right but i mean it, this will be a thing you know we, we decided people boasting on their facebook page oh i traveled you know zero emission today for the first time and it will start emerging in 2025 onwards and it will become a trend and people instead of uh of people saying i'm not going to fly um, because it's using up the plant's resources they'll be saying oh i flew esg i flew in a sustainable way um and zero avia will get the will get an automatic premium um because of that and i think that's definitely going to happen um let's keep our eyes open for the first time we we hear that in the uh, in the uh, popular media any others simon well, yeah, there's the old investing uh, maxim of revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash is reality. And I was just reading down the polysilicon makers of China have made $12 billion profit in, in the last year. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's, it's not cash, but profit is sanity. So, um, the, the, so Andres, the money is... And, and that was just the four biggest ones. Yes, yeah. Tongue There's way. about 15 polysilicon makers, and those are just the four biggest ones. Mm. And their profit's up 200%. Um, mm. But we kind of knew that. Um, but, it, it, you know, th that would explain where you're getting all the money to invest in um, new production capacity. Because mm. $10 billion is enough to build fully verticalized um, a solar industry of 50 gigawatts, uh, I'm pretty sure, last I checked. Um I've got something I want to point out because I, I wrote a little bit about um, the Chinese autonomous region of Inner Mongolia and how it intends to install a massive 25 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity this year, uh, installing two gigawatts already in January, and it only has a population of 24 million people. So it's equivalent to uh, the UK installing 60 gigawatts in terms of per capita. Uh, and then I saw that um, Bogdan had, had written an article also about Inner Mongolia. Um, not about the wind and the solar so much as the um, hydrogen that it's uh, that is powered by that. So uh, just thought I'd mention that. Well, sticking with Simon's selection, I mean the thing about these companies, Tongwei, GCL, Poly, DQ, TBEA, um, th th that's enough profit in one go to start a dynasty. And you know that uh, Chinese companies, they dis they they're happy to diversify into the next area and the next area pretty rapidly. I mean, we always know, we, we already know GCLs are across the whole um, whole solar spectrum. So um, these will be creating industrial monoliths who, who move on from here and don't just stay tamely in polysilicon, uh, but start stretching their wings. Uh, that was before, yeah, I just wanted to say that before we went on to your, uh, uh, what was your, what was your other point? <laughs> Oh, it's just mentioning how, how much development there is in, from Inner Mongolia. Only 24 million people, and it's got all of this going and on. And you would say that's because yeah, I mean, 24 that, that is there. Well, I mean, it's like the, you know, Texas used to be the heavy industry part of the USA, in a sense, and raw materials as well. And this is kind of the Texas of China. It's one. It's the wealthiest inland province, I, I think, or pretty close to that. Per capita, obviously, because there's nobody lives there. Yes, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, it is difficult to get scale with China. You know, you, you I remember when the uh, lockdown first happened and they said, oh, you know, it came out of Hubei. Uh, and then you, and you go, oh, where is that? And you look on the map and then you look it up on um, on Google or on Wikipedia and you go, oh, it's got more people than England. And then you go, oh, perspective, a place I didn't know of that's got that started a global pandemic, but it's got more people than England. And you, and you suddenly get a sense of perspective. It's, uh... And and it's it's installing more. I think it's actually inst it's installing more renewables this year or it's installing about 75 percent as much this year as America did last year, I believe, with 24 million population probably because it's cl fairly close to Beijing so some of it is uh, serving Beijing some of it serving industries that sell to the rest of the world so there you quite go. sensible if it's not that far from Beijing you put your energy project there uh, you don't have any permitting problems and uh, and if you did you just ask the uh, Communist Party to help you out and then um, you, you suddenly you've got a, a new resource um, it, it is, as we often say, um, when you have a centrally managed economy, it's much easier to get things done. Um, but you only get the right things done if you've got the right leadership in place at any given time. Um, and so you always have to beware. We, uh, we can't be jealous. Um, we just have to be slightly envious. <laughs> okay. Everything you've heard about today, we've discussed in the podcast. As is every week, it's part of um, the uh, Rethink Energy uh, weekly analysis. Go to rethinkresearch.biz, uh, you click the energy button, and then you'll be reading it. Uh, that analysis is free. Uh, on the, the orange tabs, uh, if you go across the forecast and data, that's what we do for a living. We, um, we, we sell forecasts, global forecasts, on every type of energy known to man. In fact, we have electricity, a global electricity forecast, which is the center of our um, of our whole annual offering, which is annual primary electricity forecast, APE. Um, and if you need more information about that, email um, simon at rethinkresearch.biz and, uh, and look at our pricing data. Um, and uh, we encourage you to do that. Uh, but meanwhile, build up a regular reading habit of the weekly analysis and this podcast. And with that, we're going to sign off again for another week and we'll see you again next week.